But today I want to get stuck into the book of Genesis. We're going to be, this morning, just concentrating not even on the whole of the first chapter. It's so intense. I'm going to be racing through it, but we've got a lot to get through because the book of Genesis is indeed the book of beginnings. And in fact, it's going to take a while just to get out of chapter 1, verse 1. Francis Schaeffer, who some of you uh, might have heard of, a leader in God's church, the founder of the Labrie community, a wonderful preacher and leader, um, Francis Schaeffer, uh, called Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the, uh, the most pregnant sentence ever written. We don't have the Bible reading just yet, guys. There should be a picture of Francis Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, uh, any of you familiar with the Labrie community? Yeah, yeah, wonderful Christian leader. Uh, this is Francis Schaefer. He died back in the 80s. He called Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1, the most pregnant sentence ever written. Don't you love that? I love that imagery. So full of promise, so full of hope. In this one sentence, there's so much deep and profound truth just in the first verse. You see, friends, before we get into the reading, I want you to, I want to sort of preview it so that you can put your goggles on and see that this is going to provide us with a foundation for our life, a foundation for living. Genesis provides, these opening chapters of Genesis, this what we might call prehistory, provides us with the answers to three central questions that any coherent worldview needs to be able to answer. Whether we think it, we do or not, we all really have a, a worldview, even if we sort of try to avoid it as much as we can and fill it, our lives up with all sorts of distractions. We all do have a, a sort of a, a worldview upon which we base our lives, upon which we base our words and our, and our actions. And, and Genesis provides for us a, a, a rock-solid foundation that we can build our lives upon. It, it asks and answers three great questions of the ages that all great thinkers have come across and ultimately need an answer to. Firstly, that of creation. Who are we? Why are we here? How, how did we get here? What does it mean? What is our purpose? Where did we come from? And just why is this something and not nothing? And then it talks about the fall, doesn't it? It talks about, well, what actually went wrong in this life? All of us instinctively know that something's not quite right we experienced suffering and pain and separation. Something went wrong. Genesis provides for us an answer to that. And it also provides us with an, with a, with a, puts us on the path towards redemption. That by, that by, by answering, well, how do, we, how do we fix it? What do we do about it? What's our response to this broken world? These are the fundamental questions that we need to have answered in our life if we're going to be honest with ourselves. It's the three fundamental, foundational questions that any worldview will need to be able to answer because we all actually have lenses through which we see the world. Thanks, Tina. We all actually have lenses through which we actually base our lives on. This is a cartoon that I found this week. And you've got some atheist here criticizing a, a Christian saying, you biblical creation, you Christians are, are so biased when you look at evidence saying that, well, I don't have any God, because he's looking at the Christian saying, he's looking through the, these goggles of God's word. You should try to be more objective like me. But of course, he's wearing goggles exactly the same as the Christian is. We all have lenses through which we, we see the world, whether we are aware of them or not. And Genesis provides us with a coherent 
foundation that we can build our, our lives upon. And this is really significant because whether we like it or not, whether you are aware of it or not, there are fundamentally opposing worldviews coming in conflict with each other right now. We are in the midst of what's sometimes called the, the culture wars, these radically different worldviews, these radically different ways of, of approaching life, these mutually exclusive ways of looking at life are crashing in upon each other. These mutually exclusive and antagonistic worldviews are now crashing in what might be called a secular humanism is now competing with the Judeo-Christian mindset, the Christian values upon which Western society has been built. And in fact, this secular, sort of godless humanism that exalts humans to the be-all and end-all end all, is now really dominant in much in the corridors of power in many places in society. Certainly within the universities, within the schools, within certain levels of government and the public service. Certainly within the media, certainly within online media, certainly within social media, certainly within Hollywood. So much like TV channels compete for eyeballs, or much like different footy codes now compete for the hearts and the minds of, of fans, so too the, the Christian worldview is now in a, in a deadly struggle with a secular humanism that is in fact incredibly intolerant that doesn't want the Christian worldview having a space in the public sphere. So friends, I don't want you going out into the midst of this battle unarmed. I want you to be able to see through your biblical goggles, to hear these secular humanistic themes coming through when you hear them, because they're not always going to be called such things. They're just going to be subtly slipped in. And sadly, I think many people in the church have have fallen for them. So I want you to have your radar up to catch them out when you hear them being presented to you. And Genesis is going to help us do just that. This Judeo-Christian mindset is going to break all sorts of norms that you'll see coming to you very subtly through the world. This Judeo-Christian foundation for what we believe breaks through the destructive mindset that we're just some random cosmic collection of, of atoms. It doesn't really mean anything. It breaks through the notion that, well, really, if I can get away with something, I may as well do it. It smashes the idea that might is right, that the, that the powerful have a right and even an obligation to do whatever they want at the expense of everybody else or indeed at the expense of creation. Genesis is the backstory that sheds light on the story which is, of course, the person, the teaching of Jesus Christ. We're going to get some foundational teachings on things like the universe and creation and nature and our identity of sin, of gender, of government and of salvation. Genesis stands in stark contrast to other creation narratives that, that teaches that man really is an afterthought. There's other ancient pagan religions taught that really the gods were much like you and I, capricious sort of people that went about just backstabbing. And so it was no wonder that people lived like that. But the story, the foundation that Genesis provides for us, breaks this destructive, this widespread mindset that might is right. 
if I can get away with it, if it's good for me, then I may as well do it because, well, I am my own God. So let's dig into the text uh, and mine this wonderful piece of literature for the fundamental truths that we can take away and build our lives upon. If you've got a Bible, please open it up. It's the very first chapter in your Bible, not hard to find. Uh, We're going to be reading the first 25 verses of Genesis, not even making our way right through the first chapter this morning because, well, there's so much uh, to get through. We're not even going to make it to uh, the final day of creation this morning. We're going to read the first 25 chapters of Genesis chapter 1. Wow, each word here is packed chock full of meaning. Let's, let's, uh, Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful passage of Scripture, this wonderful, powerful message to us that tells us of who we are, where we came from, the meaning of life. We pray that as we explore it over the coming weeks and months, Lord, that you will indeed be speaking to us through it. We pray that you might reveal to us something that we might not have seen before in this very familiar passage of Scripture for so many of us. Father, we pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, God said, let there be a vault between the waters that separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water appear, let the water under the sky be gathered together in one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and he gathered the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees and the land that bear fruit with seeded according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, Plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. You're seeing some patterns here. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the vault of the sky. So God created great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let birds increase on the earth. And there was evening 
And there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was... Amen. In the beginning. Let's head back to verse 1. In the beginning. Friends, I want you to know straight out of the gate that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is radically ahead of its time in that it affirms that there was a beginning. Science didn't catch up to this until 1927 when, in fact, a Belgian priest first hypothesized what we call the Big Bang Theory. Up until that point, everyone from Aristotle to Einstein assumed that the cosmos had always just been there. So straight out of the gate, far from being anti-science, the more we learn about our universe, the more we see it being, it being affirmed in Scripture. So there was a beginning. And who was the source of it? Look at the very next word. In the beginning, God. That's profound. In the beginning, God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, assumes God's pre-existence. This is massive. Because, friend, if you can believe this, if you can own this for yourself, frankly, the rest of the Bible is a walk in the park. For example, Jesus walking on water. And look, I've always, you know, how does that work? How does someone walk on water? But if you believe in the first place that Jesus invented water, all of a sudden, Jesus walking on water isn't that hard to accept. If you accept the fact that he invented water, that he authored the very laws of physics in the first place. Pause for a moment and just consider the sort of stability you can have in your life if you own this truth. That in the beginning, God, there is a God. The sort of peace you can have if you own this truth for yourself. Throughout the rest of the Bible, so many men and women own this. Acts chapter 4 is one example. The disciples get arrested, which in their day was life-threatening. And they look back to Genesis. They say in Acts chapter 4, The sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. You made the sea and everything in them. So <laughs> why do the nations rage? Why do people plot? They hand it over to God. Despite all of their problems, despite their difficult situations, they know that the whole box and dice of this earth, the whole cosmic enchilada is God's. And they hand it over to God. They can have confidence in him regardless of what might happen to them. My friend, the sky's the limit if you are a child of the God who spoke the universe into existence. It's incredibly liberating, incredibly affirming. But Genesis also smashes through. Right here in the beginning, God smashes through our very modern conceit that somehow we are the point of our lives. Genesis affirms that it is God who was there, that it is God who is the author of creation, and that as the author, as creator, he has inherent rights to ownership. you thinking that you can somehow bargain with God or negotiate with God. is like Potter trying to somehow think it can negotiate with the clay. As creator, it is God who ascribes purpose and meaning to this life, including to you. It puts an end to many 
subtle, erroneous ways that modern people think. Many isms that you'll hear today, they won't always be named as such. It puts an end to things like dualism, yin and yang, and puts an end to, well, there's, there's goodness and there's darkness and they're forever locked in this struggle. No, no, there is God. There is the creator and then there is creation. There's nothing that can compete with God in terms of his majesty and his might and his power. It puts an end to humanism, which is a fancy word that basically just means we puff ourselves up to be the be-all and the end-all. We trust in our own human ingenuity to solve all of our problems. Friend, if you put your trust in humans, you are going to be bitterly disappointed. Throughout history, this has been the case. Most recently, in many of our living memory, the the communist regimes in China or Russia that sought to eliminate God from society ended in tears. It ended very, very badly. Millions of people died. Millions of people starved. Don't fall for this subtle line that humans are the be-all and end-all. We are indeed the pinnacle of creation, as we'll find out in the coming weeks. But let's, let's be very clear. This is God's world. He makes the rules. It puts an end to things like pantheism and panentheism. Again, big fancy sounding words that won't be described like that when you hear them in the media. But it's that very subtle, and you'd hear it all the time, that you are a god. Release the inner goddess within you. You see those little ads, release the inner goddess within you. Friend, there is a god and you are not him. You are not a god. You are a creature. You're an element of creation. Panatheism describes that everything is God, that this chair is God, that the pillars are God, that God is... No, no. There is God, the creator, and then there is his creation. So be on the lookout. Have your spiritual ears, your theological ears attuned to when you hear stuff like this coming to you through the screens or your online world. It tells us, praise God, this very... We're not even out of verse 1. In the beginning, God, it tells us that you are not some random cosmic fluke, praise God. You are not just some random collection of space stars. God created you. You have meaning and purpose as a result. This is a wonderful truth that gets lost in our sea of relativism today. Have you ever really got your head around the fact that without this doctrine of God, the theologians call it, that there is a God, that without God, there really is no up or down. There really is no truth or falsehood. And there really is no right or wrong. You can't actually tell me that murder is wrong without a belief that there is a God who sets and determines what is right and what is wrong. Of course, human beings all know that murder is wrong. They know that because they're made in his image. But using their own logic, it doesn't follow. It doesn't make sense. This is why in godless societies, might makes right. It's always been the case, still up until today. If I can get away with something, I may as well, because I'm not ultimately accountable. There is no meaning and no purpose. Without an ultimate accounting for life, then ultimately life doesn't count. Friend, this stuff really matters. It's playing itself out in society today, which is why I wanted to spend a little moment on it today. I mean, our modern philosophers will tart it up with all sorts of fancy-sounding words to try to invent ways to invent meaning and purpose and to be able to determine what is right and wrong. But without God, 
It's a fool's errand. It doesn't work. I need to confess to you this morning. Here's a little time for confession. Here's you'll be beginning to, to wonder who have you called as your minister here at church in the marketplace. I worked, prior to becoming a minister, I worked at a bank. And I worked out how to rob that bank. Don't tell anyone, will you? I worked out how to rob that bank. Every once in a while, we would be out at the end of the day. The cash wouldn't balance up. And we have to find that money. Right? And you'd stay back late. And if you couldn't find the money, you have to come in early the next day to find that missing money. Now, you've got to understand, in your local bank branch, there's a million bucks. Right? You have to pull out the ATMs, empty the ATMs, cash, canisters of cash. Count every single note. Open up the vault, million bucks plus, trying to count every single note, trying to find the missing money. I remember I was sitting in my office one day with my mate Graham Black. We we're chucking cash around. We'd lost five grand. Five grand folds. You can hold a year's wages in your fist. And it becomes like confetti. It's like play money. But I stepped back one morning and I thought, I'm holding a year's wages in my hand. I know how these systems work. I reckon I could get away with this. Laundering the money would be the much harder way. <laughs> Just hint for young players. Can you imagine the headlines? Minister tells congregation how to rob a bank. <laughs> the point of telling you that story is that if you were clever enough, you could get away with it. But I could never get around the fact that as a follower of Jesus, he tells me that there is a right and a wrong, and it's wrong to steal. And I thought for a moment, well, there's plenty of people in society that don't have such qualms. This is playing itself out in society today that has no ultimate accounting, that has no basis, no inherent meaning and purpose in this life. In the beginning, God created. This Hebrew word created is only ever used in describing God himself. It's used to make something, to create something, to bring forth something that was not there before. The other ancient creation myths have creation coming out of a body of a slain god or an ancient warrior. But as we'll see in a moment, Genesis is radically different. In verse 2, we have the Spirit of God being present. This God's Spirit is there. As we'll see in a moment, the entire Trinity is there at creation, at work, and it is hovering there over the waters. This word hovering is only ever used to describe in the Old Testament a, a, a mother protecting her chicks. This is a loving God, a protective God, a God who wants to be in relationship with you. And in verse 3, another profound truth, and God said, unlike other traditions that maintain that the world came out of something else, the Judeo-Christian mindset tells us, no, no, God simply spoke the world into being. God breathed into existence all that we see around us as an outworking of his incredible love for us. We've already seen that the Spirit was, was present, and next week uh, in, in this pinnacle of creation, we're going to hear God say, let us create mankind in our image. God is by his very nature, is relationship. We human beings are social creatures designed to be in relationship because we're made in God's image and God is, at his core, a relationship. This is why the natural order, creation, is so moving towards it because it's built to be in relationship with God. 
Nature reflects God's majesty. Nature sings praises towards the Creator. And we hear that, don't we? We go out into nature. I, I love being out in, in creation. It's what floats my boat. So we sense it. We hear that call to be in relationship. But something's impeding us. Something holds us back. We're seeing coming weeks, that thing, of course, is, is sin. And, and by the way, interestingly, George Whitfield, one of the great Methodist preachers, one of the founders of Methodism, said that sin is why nature is wary of we human beings. He says that the animals instinctively flee from us because they somehow instinctively sense that we have a quarrel with their creator with whom they enjoy such wonderful intimacy. Now, I want you to see also here as we move on through the rest of the chapter, verses 3 through to 25, I want you to see here the poetic nature, the rhythmic nature. Did you pick up the, rep the repetition as I read through it? Did you pick that up? And God said, and it was so, and it was good, evening and morning. Which leads me to a question that I'm sure some of you are wondering about, wondering if I was going to answer this morning. And that of whether or not we should be reading these opening chapters of Genesis as literal historic fact or as some sort of poetic parable. Should we really be believing in a literal six days of creation? What about evolution? We know that the earth is a lot older than that, don't we? And how did Noah fit all of those animals onto the ark? And what about all those eight and nine hundred year time frames? How does all of that work, Pete? What's going on there? As Christians, we're told we should just believe the Bible at face value. Take it literally, don't we? Some Christians will tell you yes, but I want to suggest this morning that even those people who say they take the, every word of the Bible literally don't really do that. They don't really take that every word of the Bible literally. We're not meant to. It's not written like that. There's lots of different genres of literature in the Bible. There's genealogies, there's songs, there's poetry, there's histories. There's all sorts of different types of, of passages. And something about the way that's written tells us about the meaning and communicates something to us. Uh, there are songs, all sorts of things. To give you an example of what I mean, uh, Psalm 19 says that God has sent a, a tent in for the sun. And we don't read that and think there's a great big canvas over in the western sky for the sun. The psalm writer is telling us something uh, about the profound majesty and power of God at that point, isn't it? We don't, take that, we don't take that literally. So what genre are these early chapters of Genesis then? How will we describe them? Well, I think it's helpful to describe them as a kind of prehistory. It's a kind of, of prehistory we might call them. It's like an overture for an opera or for a musical. It gives the backdrop. It sets the scene. It's poetic. It's repetitive. It's not like a literal historical narrative. It's highly structured. It's rhythmic. It's numeric. Now, this, of course, is not to say that Genesis is untrue or not historical, but I do think we need to recognize it as being a different type of history. We perhaps could call it a figurative history. It's rather like the parables of Jesus, I think. Now, Jesus' parables were made-up stories. They weren't true stories. They're stories that he invented in order to communicate a deep, fundamental truth, don't they? I think the same is true of Genesis. Now, I certainly think God could have created the world in seven literal days if that's what he wanted. 
And if some of you are feeling slightly uneasy, let me even up the score. Let me be an equal opportunity offender this morning. Lean in nice and tight because if you actually push me, Pete Chapman's personal opinion, if you really want to know, come and chat to me after the service. But I actually think the creation story is actually more believable than evolution. So there you go. That'll offend the other half of you here this morning. I was doing some research for uh, the youth group. Had a wonderful time at youth group again on Friday night, doing some research about creation. And, and, and the idea that the humpback whales that we see going up and down our coast evolved from an ancient wolf and decided to wander into the ocean, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, if I get to heaven and God says, yeah, Pete, that's how it worked, I'll be perfectly fine with that too. I'm perfectly fine with it other way, either way. It's also interesting to note uh, some of you who, who hold to a literal interpretation of Genesis, we do actually see built into the description here what, modern, what we modern scientists, what we moderns would see as evolutionary theory. It's built in. Starts off with the waters, think about it. Moves on to vegetation. Then moves to life in the sea and then onto the land. God does seem to be using natural processes. In chapter 2, verse 5, it says, no vegetation was upon the land because no rains had yet come. So there's arguments back and forth. I also want you to know, Christian, that it's not anti-science, that in actual fact, Western science is built upon these fundamental truths. Many of the great scientists down through the ages, perhaps the greatest of them all, Sir Isaac Newton, wrote extensively on theology. These were Christians. Modern Western science is built upon the notion that creation is now done, that it is set, that it is observable, that it is measurable, and that those measurements are repeatable. That is the basis of science. We're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and see another moon in the sky. The tides aren't about to change for us. Our family have been watching Star Wars again, and at one point Luke Skywalker stares off into the distance as two suns set over the horizon on his home planet of... Tatooine. There you go. But here on Earth, here in the real world, we have one sun and one moon upon this planet. Creation is set. We know what to expect. It's measurable. It's observable. So faith and science are not in conflict. This is what I want to affirm this morning. Faith and science ask two very different questions. Science asks the how, and faith asks the why. Trying to get the Bible to answer scientific questions is as silly as asking the scientists to explain the meaning and the purpose of life. These are fundamentally different questions. Where non-believers see chaos and disorder, we see order and meaning and purpose. Let's be firm in our knowledge. The modern discoveries of modern science don't diminish the idea that God is indeed the creative force behind the universe. The Bible, properly understood, will never contradict science. In fact, I'd actually go so far as to say, is if you're reading Genesis like it's a biology textbook or like a history book, I actually think we're probably not giving it the weight that it's due. I don't think we necessarily need to read it like that. The style, the genre of literature tells us that I don't think we really need to do that. Personally speaking, makes a lot of sense to me. Happy to chat about it with you afterwards. What I don't want us to get caught up 
as we move on is to not get caught up in these silly arguments back and forth. God spends about 630 words describing creation, doesn't give us a lot of detail, and then moves on to the story of redemption. I think we as church should do the same and keep our eyes on the main game, our eyes on the prize, and that is, of course, the end game of redemption. That is Jesus Christ himself. So when someone comes to you and wants to argue these sorts of points, can I share your point of view, point them to me, I'm happy to chat about theology till the cows come home, but I would point them to Job. You know the story of Job. Some bad things happened to Job, and, uh, and they spent chapter after chapter, him and his mates, raging and arguing and telling what must have happened. And finally, God has enough. He, he thunders from him and says, Who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its dimensions? On what are the earth's footings set? Tell me if you know. And of course, they can't tell God. God is the only witness to creation. So my recommendation is to get out of the speculation business and to get on to pointing people towards his word, the word made flesh. So in closing, can I point you towards this word made flesh? I'll leave you with one last surprising truth as we leave these opening verses of Genesis behind. When I started, uh, when I was at university, I, read, I started reading the Bible chronologically. This is my Bible in a year planner. I started using it again this year. You'll see I've gone through it a couple of times already. I can recommend it to you. I can, if you're wanting a daily Bible, I can, it makes a lot of sense out of Scripture because it works through the Bible chronologically. And to my surprise as a young university student, I expected to open up uh, to find the very first passage of a chronological Bible study to be Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. But it wasn't. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is not the chronological start of the Bible. A better pay, place to start, chronologically speaking, is before even Genesis, before even prehistory. It's John chapter 1, verse 1. Do you know what it says? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Praise God. This God's word, the Logos, the word made flesh is Jesus of Nazareth. He was there at the beginning. Another wonderful chapter if you want to get some extra brownie points. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Through him, everything was made through him and by him and for him, talking about Jesus himself. Jesus was there at the beginning as part of creation. And at the cross, too, we see a sort of an undoing. We see a juxtaposition, a parallel, but sort of a, a juxtaposition to this creation narrative. Think about it. The God who became matter, the God made flesh, the God who who spoke matter into being, became matter. But at the cross, the word made flesh speaks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he gets no answer. He was emptied in order that you might be filled. He was emptied rather than filling a void. 
He was deconstructed. He was unmade in order that you might be remade, reconstructed, redeemed. He died in your place. He died the death that you deserved. Why? Because he wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to bring you into his circle of love, into his circle of trust. Makes me think of that Ben Stiller movie, Meet the Parents. You know the circle of trust? It's looking at Ben Stiller. The story of that movie, very briefly, is that he's very, Robert De Niro is very suspicious. He's got his nice little family unit, and this young fellow wants to marry his daughter. He's suspicious of letting anyone else into his family of trust, his circle of trust. This God that we worshipped invites seven billion of us into his circle of love and trust and all of creation beside. Praise God. He wants to be in relationship with you. He sent his son to die for you so that you can once again be in right relationship with him. Friend, until you receive this truth, you will have a formless, empty void within You can try to fill it up with all manner of worldly stuff, of wealth and power and prestige and cars and homes and dogs and fancy lawns. The Australian cricket is apparently into lawns. Did you hear that? They're all, they're lawnies. There's a whole subgroup out there of lawnies. Nothing against lawns. Nothing against a nice car or a nice house. But none of those things are going to satisfy. None of those things are going to fill the void within until you accept this radical truth for yourself. The God who breathed the universe into existence came and lived as one of us, died in your place, was made empty for you in order that you might become full. Until you receive that, until you accept that, you'll have all manner of distorted relationships with the rest of creation. You'll be tempted to worship creation like some elements of the modern environmental movement do. You'll be tempted to exploit creation as some elements of modern corporate world do. You'll be tempted to be afraid of creation, as we've seen in the last couple of years, an irrational fear of creation. Until we come into a right relationship with Creator, all of those other things will be put in their right place once you accept that, yes, I am part of creation. I yield my life to His good, life-giving ordinances. Perhaps the worst thing of not being in that relationship is that you won't be able to join the choir You won't be able to join in with the praises of creation, singing, praise God, he made us and he calls us good. Friend, he calls you good. He calls you very good. And he's calling you into relationship with him today. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is weighty stuff. This is heavy stuff. But it's praiseworthy stuff, Father, because you call us good. We are part of creation, the pinnacle of creation, Father. We are made in your image. So, Father, help us to take to heart these lessons we've learnt this morning. That we are loved, that we are good, that it is by your word that this world has its being, that you are the author of life, that this is your world. You set the ordinances, you make the rules, Father. Help us to yield our life to your good, life-giving precepts. Help us to live in accordance, in, in harmony with creation to the best 
of our abilities this week, surrendering control of, of our lives over to you, our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. In Jesus' name, amen.